everybody. Welcome back to the big show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, and we are your co-hosts, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. I'm here. Let's go. And I am Pastor Donovan Riley. The result, it belongs to the very nature of a great historic event that its true significance is hidden from its witnesses and contemporaries. This rule applies also to the four eventful days in the autumn of 1529 at Marburg. Neither Luther nor Zwingli, neither Busser nor Philip of Hesse, nor any of the theologians and politicians who witnessed the discussions were able to estimate the importance of what had happened. Hence, the divergence in their opinions as to the result. A kind of uncertainty may even be observed in the utterances of the individual participants. The generous hospitality of the landgrave, the community life of the participants at the castle, the fact that men who had known one another from writings only, and polemical ones at that, had now become personally acquainted. All this helped to remove old prejudices. Each side promised in the future to write in a more friendly way on questions that were still controversial. And that, from the result, section three of the Marburg Colloquy in the book, This is My Body, by Hermann Saze, Luther's contention for the real presence in the sacrament of the altar. I like this idea that, that uh, historic events, you know, you just can't understand what's going on in the moment. Uh, right. Maybe sometimes, right? So, like, your wedding. <laughs> You know, it may end up becoming. I definitely did not comprehend what was happening in the moment at my. Well, wedding. right, yeah. You look back on it and say, "Whoa, that," ooh. or like uh, your ordination to the holy ministry, right? <laughs> like all well, I heard, actually, both instances, all I heard was, "This is where you say yes." <laughs> all right, <laughs> but uh, it, but it is true. I mean, you look back. What do you say? Uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. Is the expression right? sure? Yeah, right. Uh, you can look back and say, "Wow, that really was uh, an important moment." And uh, maybe we're so conditioned by fiction. To, mm. You know where the author is laying, laying the uh, what do you want to say the groundwork, you know, yeah. for for something that's going to happen later, um, but uh, the characters don't understand that in the moment. They can't. They can't see where things are going the way that the author might. Right. Well, and especially when you consider this is fifteen twenty nine mm -hmm. in Wittenberg, the peasants' revolt. There's still the embers of the peasants' revolt. Luther has written the small catechism, preaching through the large catechism sermons, or what would eventually become the large catechism, right. ramping up for Augsburg. Uh, not like literally, but getting there as far as the movement goes. Mm. Ramping up towards Augsburg to defend the Catholicity of the Wittenberg theology and the reforms at Wittenberg. Right. And then in Zurich with Zwingli, you also have in 1523, he defends... The reforms that he made, or at least started to make in Zurich, in his theses. And so both men in both groups, and in, like he says here, including Busser, Martin Busser, and then Philip of Hesse, who's there now too, all of these people are simply caught up in this wave. And that, that whole, it's really a fallacy to say that, you know, this is a definitive moment, right? <laughs> right. Uh, it, you know, even with like a great battle or something like that, and in this right. case, you know, uh, all of these, this theological movement and really their life's on the line as a result. Right. Uh, you know, well, it, it obviously is important at, in the moment, right. but you can't understand the, the... It's everything that lends itself and leads up to that moment. It's interesting you brought that up. I'm reading right now Xenophon's uh, biography of Cyrus the Great. Mm. And at the very outset of the campaign against the Assyrians, one of the things that Cyrus notes, his uncle who he, he needs his cavalry. His uncle is um, king of the Medes and he needs his, his cavalry, fam world famous cavalry at the time, Median cavalry. But his uncle is driven more by anxiety and fear and insecurity than he is by confidence in himself and his intellect and his ability to lead and inspire. So everything Cyrus does, he has this long dialogue with his father that Xenophon records and everything about the dialogue, because his father rides with him to the border and as he's riding with him, he gives him all these different counsels on leadership and tactics and how to talk to his uncle and how to talk to the troops and the generals and so forth. Everything leading up to the battle is more important <laughs> than, the, than the battle. So when they arrive then at the battlefield, 
because they have Cyrus has done so much to prepare for the battle, the battle becomes almost an afterthought. The the Assyrians are overwhelmed mm-hmm. by the Persian charge, even though they're they outnumber the Persians, and their ranks kind of disintegrate. The cavalry charges backwards. The the infantry turns around and runs into themselves and, and tr- threatens to trample the cavalry, and it's chaos. And the women and children are standing on the ramparts of the of the fort, yelling down at the men, calling them cowards, and tearing their clothing and scratching at their faces in shame at what the soldiers are doing. But to your point, then, we often put so much weight on one particular moment in time after the fact and say, this is 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It's the most important event in the history of what would eventually become the United States. Mm -hmm. Is it? Not really. (laughs) Is, Is the First Continental Congress the most pivotal moment in American history? Not really. It is a is landmark kneeling. of sorts, right? Right. It's it's or a signpost. as my professor said. It's a yeah a signpost. It's a hook that you hang your hat on. Mm. Likewise, fifteen seventeen. We all want to celebrate fifteen seventeen as the beginning of the Reformation, when we all know it's not. Yeah, it's just a convenient place to hang your historical hat on. Well, and even if you want to say fifteen thirty at Augsburg, I mean that obvious obviously is more significant because you've got all the princes and you've got the Holy Roman Emperor. I mean, it's a big deal, right? One hundred percent. But still, yeah. You know, it's everything that leads up to that, that we should pay more attention to because in books on historiography, for example, Mm. this is the principle of, for want of a nail, the kingdom falls. Don't go to the nail factory and figure out how Mm. they're making nails. Mm -hmm. Go and look, go talk to the treasurer and the IRS and the people that are in charge of the money for the kingdom and the economy of the kingdom. Right. They can probably tell you why the kingdom fell and it, probably isn't the nail factory producing faulty nails. Mm, mm. The nail factory is the kind of last, that's where you arrive to kind of suss out what has this all led to, the mishandling of the money and the mishandling of the economy and so forth. Well, it's led to this factory producing these nails. Yeah. So in this case, I mean, Luther wasn't aware of it, but but certainly now from our perspective, you know, the vantage point of history, we look back and say Marburg, this is a Mm -hmm. definitive moment as to Luther's confession of the Lord's Supper. Right. Well, to that point too, what we're about to read in the primary citations, uh, the way that we look at it historically is not the way that it was actually viewed by the people that were involved. Of course. We think of it as this huge this huge dividing of these two groups of people, that the Lutherans and what would eventually become the Reformed mm-hmm. Church and mm-hmm. the Protestant Church. It, that wasn't their, neither side had that attitude about these discussions. It wasn't, as, as uh, Sazi points out, this was not polemical. They got together, they drank beers, they sat around the fire and swapped stories, because you have to remember, for both Zwingli and Luther and for all those in attendance, they're surrounded by people who have been ordered to kill them on sight. Yeah. So they have a lot in common, not least of which is their strong dislike of the papacy Mm. and the medieval penitential system and all that goes with it. Well, and the other aspect of this too, and we've probably lost this now, especially um, with the advent of social media, is that not everything written in a polemical way um, ought to be received as a personal insult. Right, it's just polemical. Right. I mean, you're you're speaking against, right. you know, their idea, but you might add a, a few insults just for uh, right. emphasis, right? <laughs> As we add swears or curses. Well, I was thinking about that again last night. We're watching The Last Kingdom, another show about Vikings, mm. and go figure. Yeah, I know it's it's my wheelhouse. But um, one of the things I noted again is when you read Beowulf, a, a primary text from from that a similar time period, is the understanding of God and Jesus and what God does and doesn't do in creation, for example, Mm -hmm. we have gone so far away from not only the Old Testament teaching on this, but just the way that the early medieval folks understood God's involvement in the world. There's no such thing as a war or a conflict or a king or anything that doesn't happen that isn't God's will on both sides. And, And his hand is active in it. Yes, 100%. And to your point, that that's what kind of aroused that thought again is we have such a soft piety now and we get offended so easily and we project that sensitivity and that, well, lack of, what do you want to call it? Savagery, masculinity, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm, right. I don't know. It's early Monday morning. But whatever it is, we've lost that. And part of it is just having to face your enemy literally face to face. 
and and put up or shut up. Yeah. And because I, if you hurl an insult off the wall, eventually they're either going to lay siege and burn down your village or you're going to have to go out there and fight them. So you better watch what you say. They're going to hold you to your word. Right, exactly. So you you post, you know, an insulting tweet 10 years ago, which yeah. today you, you probably couldn't even remember that you even said it right. in the first place. Right. And now it's, it's like this damning evidence of your right. lack of... Um, you know, social acceptability. Like, right. Really? Um, you know, like yeah. I couldn't make a mistake. I can't just back off from that and say, yeah, I was kind of an idiot. That was 10 years ago. I was a lot younger and I'm stupid. Right. You know, right. And that's not an acceptable um, answer anymore. Well, because there's no consequence for attacking you. Right. This whole outrage culture that's developed around social media, Twitter in particular, but also Facebook. Mm -hmm. Outrage culture is essentially it's, it's a sport at this point. It's a leisure activity like pool or, or bowling. Except with it's real a, consequences. Well, for the people that are being attacked, there are real consequences. Mm, exactly. But yeah, that's what I mean. Again, I tell people either turn off social media and walk away and go live in the real world and you know enjoy real world consequences, or take responsibility for participating in whatever is happening on yeah. social media. I'm I'm only reacting to the idea that um, people attach real consequence yeah, to what exactly. ought not have real consequence attached <clears throat> to it. People say stupid Verse, things online, right. just ignore it. And no, 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 it's real. It's true. It's like, no, it's, no, it's no. comedy. It's, it's, uh, acting, you know? It, yeah, I was going to say, it's actually a parody of real human interaction. Oh, you call it like theater, right? Yeah, it is. It's theater. pageantry. It's kabuki or theater, pageantry. Hmm. But here, basically a letter's written. I'll meet you. Where do you want to meet at? Let's meet at Marburg. Good. Done. Mm -hmm. Let's meet. And due to the nature of the technology at the time, we didn't just jet in for the afternoon or spend a couple days. This was pack up a trunk and make sure we're provisioned because we're going to be there for a month, yeah. or a couple weeks. And so you're there. You don't have to say everything that needs to be said in a moment. You can sit down. You can be more methodical about it. You can flesh out, hey, what did you mean when you said this? And then when you're done, you go eat right. and you go drink. Right. And you go tell stories and you sing and you, maybe you even worship together. Mm. And then you go home and we're going to get to that. So let's get back to the book. Yeah. So Luther writing to his wife, Katie, on October of 4th, called a colloquy, called the colloquy, a friendly one. On the same day, he wrote to Nicholas Gerbel in Strasbourg, who had sent greetings to him through the Strasbourg delegates. Luther writes, it seems to me that a good deal of that scandal is being removed since public strife in writings and disputations is to cease. Indeed, we did not expect to accomplish as much as we did. Would to God that also the stumbling block, which still remains, might at last be removed through Christ. In the same letter, Luther makes it clear what the conditions of a real union would be. Luther writes, As we have forcefully defended our position, and the other side has yielded much of theirs, and remained stubborn in the one article <laughs> on the sacrament of the altar only, they were dismissed in peace. Charity and peace we owe even to our enemies. Hmm. They were told to be sure that in case they should fail to come to their senses concerning this article, they might enjoy our charity, but could not be regarded by us as brethren and members of Christ. Hmm. Right? Wow. When I first read that, oh, so many years ago, and then when I picked this up this morning, that that sentence struck me charity and peace we owe even to our enemies yeah. and even though we don't consider them brethren or members of the body because of the rejection of the altar or sacrament of the altar we will still continue to treat them with charity and you know we've talked about uh, ecumenical efforts um on this show and other other places too and it's interesting because for luther you know what you confess about the sacrament of the altar you know christ Christ being it's pretty much it, right? It, that yeah. is that is defining of church fellowship. It, it's defining yeah. of actually your identity as a Christian, right? And we talked about that last week too with Alert, mm, right? And and that's I think that's uncomfortable because uh, the sacrament of the altar by many is treated as just something nice that we do together, right? And yeah. that maybe the defining thing is baptism, which is also true. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it is defining as our identity in Christ. Um, but what you confessed about the sacrament of the altar, I mean, Paul's pretty clear about this in Corinthians. Yeah, exactly. He's fairly clear. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> Some have that, died. Yeah. This, you're cutting yourself off from Christ. 
by receiving this, you know, in a way that's not faithful to what right. Christ has instituted. Hmm. And actually, to to note, just as a sidebar, real quick, Paul's language is pretty much the same language as Genesis chapter two, hmm? meaning if you eat this, you'll die. And what both the Lord means when he speaks to the man and woman and what Paul is addressing is not an actual quote-unquote physical death. They're not going to literally drop dead if they eat it, which if you know anything about Zwingli's experience, when Zwingli took the sacrament for the first time in his home and they ate meat on Good Friday, he actually thought God was going to strike him dead, physically dead. That's how deeply entrenched those late medieval teachings were. Mm. So when Paul says, yeah, some of you have already died, he doesn't actually mean physically, although that could be possible. He means spiritually. That is, they're dead. Yeah. They're dead in the, they're dead. They're dead to the faith. They're dead to Christ. Why? Because they've cut themselves off from the source of life. Because they cut them off from the source of life. And this is what Luther's saying here, essentially, which is we can't really regard them as being our brothers and sisters or members of the body because they reject the body. (laughs) And as we were talking before we went on air, first John is clear. Water, blood, and spirit are the witness that Jesus is the Christ. So if you reject the blood, what what's left? Yeah. Well, if you reject the blood, are you really not going to reject the water? And probably what's behind that is uh, the notion today that the practices of the church are all just, oh, I don't know, uh, or, you know, apostolic or even you know medieval just additions, right? Right. And that that the only thing that is truly unifying is the Word of God, namely you know the Bible. But mm-hmm. not necessarily the word of God that institutes the gifts. Was, well, it's unifying because we can interpret it any way we want. Mm, yeah, you can't. You cannot. Well, I shouldn't say that. You can interpret the words of institution by putting an emphasis on remembrance, for example, which sure. the Reformed do. Sure, this is Zwingli's point. Zwingli puts all the emphasis on remembrance. Luther puts all his emphasis on is right. and testament. Right. But covenantal theologians would argue against the translation of that word as testament. Decaia, no, what is that word there? Testamentum in Latin. Who knows? Yeah, testamentum in Latin. Yeah, I know that part. Um, <laughs> That's easy. Cognate. But the point, the point being is you can't, you can't mess up the words of institution. You just have to get rid of them. Is it diatheke? Yeah, thank you, diatheke. Because I kept thinking decaia suni. I'm like, that's righteousness. That's diatheke. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Hmm. There we go. At least I was in the ballpark of the D's. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, diatheke, you can translate that as covenant. However, right. I would argue vehemently out of the Septuagint, it's testament because of the implication there that God must die. And so thus Luther continues, or at least Saze continues, then we'll jump back into Luther. Saze says, these passages show clearly what Luther thought at the end of the colloquy about its result. Mm-hmm. In the first sermon which he preached at Wittenberg on his return, He gave a report that expressed the same view. Luther says, things look rather hopeful. I do not say that we have attained brotherly unity, but a kindly and friendly concord, so that they seek from us in a friendly way what they are lacking. And we, on the other hand, assist them. Mm. If you will pray diligently, the concord may become a brotherly one. I think here, one has to note Luther's arrogance. (laughs) It might be a pious arrogance. Yeah. But the fact that Luther twice now, we read uh, two two excerpts here, one from the sermon, one from the letter to Nicholas Garibald. Luther doesn't make any concessions on anything that they may or may not be in error or at least He holds the high ground as, you know. Right. Or, hey, you know what we learned from them? No, not even that. Not even, yeah, we learned a lot from them. Mm, They conceded. No, they conceded. They yielded much and remained stubborn in the one article. They were dismissed in peace. But yeah, it's, well, they yielded a lot and we defended our position. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of a Lutheran, uh, what do you want to say? Part of our ethos. We're not giving up the high ground. (laughs) We don't give up anything. Right, we give nothing. Uh, Although we see at Augsburg, um, later, you know, just mm-hmm. one year later, there is concession, yeah. right? We'll we'll submit yeah. to say the Pope as long as it's by human authority, not God's authority, right? right? As long as the Pope acknowledges that he's just a dude, we're happy to call him Pope <laughs> figurehead, yeah. yeah. As if they didn't know politically what they were asking for, <laughs> right? So not much of a concession actually, but uh, still, you know, it's something. <laughs> I mean, the entire papacy would topple, but other than that, it's fine. But it is interesting, again, talking about fellowship and talking about, um, you know, what what is necessary for concord. 
you know, the, right. again, Augsburg, not that long, you know, just a little bit after this, it's what what is necessary for that we agree on upon what? The preaching of the gospel and the administration right. of the sacraments, including the Lord's table, right? Correct, correct. Yeah. And if we don't agree on that, we actually don't believe the same. Right. We don't have, that's, I, I would say we don't have the same Christ. Right, because it does come down to the confession, not the practice. Mm -hmm. Because the confession, so to be clear, because Franz Pieper has a famous essay uh, entitled Doctrine and Practice, and there's been arguments made, and he even makes this argument in the essay itself about, is there a distinction between doctrine and practice, or is your doctrine your practice? And around the Lord's table, I don't really have a hard and fast answer mm. uh, in the sense of, I would argue at least today, just thinking through it with you, what you confess is your practice. <laughs> it's this, it's this, to me, it's what allow, what you allow in your presence is your standard. Yeah. What you tolerate, that's, that should be how you're judged. If you tolerate uh, an abusive spouse in your presence, right? Let's say your friend comes to you and says, yeah, my wife got lippy last night and I had to slap her around. Yeah. If, if you explain that away or you tolerate that, then that is your standard. Spousal abuse is now your standard. Mm. You have basically affirmed by your silence that what he did was it was acceptable to you. Versus if you come into my presence and say that, one, I'm going to talk to you. And two, if I have to, I will grab you and we will, yeah. my, pra my doctrine and my practice at that moment will coincide. Because I cannot allow you to say in my presence, I beat my wife last night and here's why. I can't allow that. I can't tolerate it. Well, it's one of the most uncomfortable things uh, for us, maybe as pastors especially, is that everything we do matters. Yes, it does. <laughs> Everything is judged. Whether we like it to or want it to. I mean, even even when we're outside, you know, the office, you know, just uh, right. whatever, rolling on the mat, you talk about that. I mean, it's yeah. still, it still matters. And that would matter even if you're yeah. just a Christian, right? It's going to be a reflection upon what you believe. Right, mm -hmm. right. Well, to me, it does, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And thus, you better be pretty sure, right? You better be pretty certain what your confession is. Yeah. And you better be ready to apologize for it when people say, well, how can you do that? Or how can you say that and yet call yourself a Christian? Yeah. And in this case, how can you say it's not actually the body and blood of Jesus? How can you say is doesn't actually mean is, and yet call yourself a Christian? Because as I've said before, and I've been called out on this by other people, other pastors even, when you say that this is not the body and blood of Jesus, you're calling him a liar. Mm -hmm. Because those are literally his words. Yeah. I mean, the church has cocked up a lot in the last 2,000 years. We've <laughs> made a mess of just about everything. But the one thing that we have not screwed up are the words of institution. We have retained them. Right. Yeah. We we've retained the words of institution. We've Maybe got the Lord's that. Prayer we've, too. <laughs> we've retained. I was thinking of that we retained the Lord's prayer. Uh, we retain baptism and the baptismal formula. And, and maybe the and apostolic to, creeds, yeah. Right, I was going to say, and, and to a certain extent, we, we got the creeds. We got them. Yeah. But those are certainly eroding faster, even faster now. Point being, though, the ordo, we call it, right? The ordo salutis, mm -hmm. and also just the basic ordo in the liturgy is, these are basically the things we're saying apostolically, creedly. You got to have these things. Mm. And I don't know if it was you and me were talking about this mm. last week, but... I don't even care if you use different instrumentation. No. Just make sure, like for me, the historic liturgy, divine service setting three in the Lutheran service book. I don't care how that comes out musically, so long as the confession remains unchanged. And that starts for me with the heart of the liturgy, which is the Lord's Prayer, or the Lord's Look Supper. Look at you. You're Mr. Conservative. I know. It's because I'm getting old. I'm turning into Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah, just sitting on your front porch. Neighborhoods changing. As, as a pastor, just from my experience, like you said, my sacramental piety then mm -hmm. becomes the foundation of my confession and my practice. So therefore, if I don't have that dialed in and that's not tight, as you know, too, as a pastor, plenty of people are going to impress upon you the need to let anybody who, who comes to church come to the altar. Mm -hmm. But as I've said, okay, she was confirmed here, but she's a Wiccan. Yeah. She literally practices Druidism. What about her convinces you that she needs to come to the Lord's table? Well, and even, well, she's my daughter and she was confirmed here. Yeah. So? <laughs> well, and even even barring that, um, just say, for example, they walked away from church for 10 years. Yeah. You know, you. it's obvious that you can't expect that the world has not had any influence on this person in those 10 right. years. Now, right. I mean, maybe as simple as say, what brought you back? Um, I need forgiveness, you know, and I, it's present yeah. in the Lord's body, yeah. blood, and the sacrament of the altar. Yeah. Like, terrific. All right. Whatever right. else you accumulated in those 10 years, right? The, you know, the word of God has called you back here and, then, right. and, and by the spirit. So that's beautiful, right? Right. But maybe not. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
maybe you're you're back because i don't know you just need friends you know or, yeah you need a social club yeah. there's free coffee really bad what free no, coffee not, that's not, that can't be it yeah yeah right mm. or yeah you, you just you have kids now and you want the pastor to teach your kids how to be good moral people mm. yeah. as so often happens well and so this i mean this affects your practice affects mine too i remember uh this is just this last week walking out of church and just said to somebody um you know everything i do i'm trying to teach you something right 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 100%. You know, whether it's uh, reintroducing the singing of the Psalms or talking about more frequent reception of the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. You know, why Why do I want to teach you? Well, actually, it's the question that people ask me all the time. It's like, right. you, people talk, you believe so much about, you know, the blessing of the Lord's Supper. Why Why do you only have it, you know, a couple times a month? What, right. What's, what's going on in your head? And I honestly don't really know. Again, you, that is your confession. That's your confession right there. It is. It says something. Yeah. And I don't know if, it's intimately clear as to what it's saying because right because it's so arbitrary to say well second fourth fifth sundays well and that's so i think what you've gotten here gotten a hold of Mm. is so vitally important to your point which is as as the pastor that's really what our vocation is is to come in and say hey maybe you're not aware of what you're confessing let's flesh this out literally let's flesh this out yeah and just ask a visitor and they're gonna they're really good at seeing it you know, your right. blind spots, we might call it, right. inconsistency, right. where your doctrine right. doesn't meet what you're doing. Yeah. And actually, what you're doing you're is f- confessing a different doctrine what, than what right. you say you do. <clears throat> if your font is in a closet, for example, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <clears throat> you've replaced that font with some other symbol. That's human nature. Right. We are ritualistic by nature. God made us to be ritualistic. And therefore, if your font is in the closet, that, that's a confession. Right. Of what you think regarding baptism. I've done a lot of work on church architecture, and I think we talked about this as well, you know, with with the modernism, the movement and architecture of modernism. Right, right. And kind of the stark, just bare simplicity. Uh, What has happened since then is (laughs) you see these sometimes really, uh, what do you want to say? Ugly. Well, yeah, maybe ugly renovations. Grotesque. But, but not only that, it, you see this cognitive dissonance where you have two really radically different styles and they get juxtaposed because sure. the churches now are seen as really, like you said, ugly or just boring or whatever it is. And so then we bring in like sacred art or felt banners, mm-hmm. um, you know, add adds all sorts of architectural elements. Something takes its place or giant butterflies, whatever it is. <laughs> and, and um, you know... Why? Because the church isn't pretty. You, <laughs> right. There, you, you know you confess that what happens in the sanctuary is a beautiful thing, and then right. you chose to decorate in such a way that's just... In, Grotesque. Yeah, not, not beautiful. Maybe, yeah. maybe it had an intentional focus and it was simple. Uh, and a helpful, maybe that is helpful sometimes, you know, because you go to... Endure. But that is the dichotomy also, is that the dichotomy is that what we consider beautiful as Christians in our confession is grotesque to the world. Well, there's that Christ too. crucified. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true too, yeah. And that's why we try and pretty it up with symbolism from the world, even other religions. We see this well, in, the, in Israel. And like I said, like I said, I mean, it, it is like a Rococo, you know, church. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, they're they're beautiful in a way, but they're also very distracting, right? Because right. they lack focus. So I get there that. There you go, that's a great way to say it. Yeah. Exactly, water, blood, and spirit. How is this point to the water, the blood, and the spirit? Yeah, so there's your font, there's your altar, and everything is pointing you in, the, in that direction. Right. Even the art, even the windows, you know, right. or the angels, you know, or whatever you've got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So back to the book. Stronger expressions were used by Luther in a letter written on October 12th. So the letter to his wife that I just read, October 4th, same day, Nicholas Gerbel, October 4th. Now, about a week later, he's writing to uh, John Agricola where he states that the opponents had humbled themselves beyond measure, asking for peace, and that they were unfit for a disputation. (laughs) So Agricola was in Marburg with Luther. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who don't know, Agricola and Melanchthon had a a bit of a disagreement on law and gospel, just a bit, which led to what eventually was entitled the antinomian disputations. Right, but that comes in the next decade, right? It does, but that's my point too of, there were people around Luther who his, they were some of his best friends who believed they were do or die, right? Ride or die with Luther. They would ride or die with Luther on the Reformation. Mm, mm, mm. And then Agricola breaks ranks and says, you're not Luther anymore. You've changed. You've backslid into late medieval Roman Catholicism again. Mm. And even us, and even Agricola at the end of the day kind of goes in the direction of Zwingli. Yeah, he does. 
That's true. And yet here he's arguing against Zwingli <laughs> and the Reformed. So then Osaze continues, Melanchthon, Osiander, another one who goes off the rails, yep. and Justice Jonas, in their reports and letters, did not speak in an offensive way, though it is quite natural that the other side resented every hint after having yielded. Hmm. Zwingli seems to have been the first to speak of, quote, victory and, quote, defeat. Writing, we are certain that our actions were right in the sight of God. Posterity will be, or posterity will testify to that. Truth has prevailed so manifestly that if ever a person has been defeated, it is the impudent and stubborn Luther. Hmm. I can't, I mean, I can't really argue with the personality depiction there. I lo again, I love no, Luther I know, more than... I know, It reminds me of the later debate in our context between uh, uh, Walther and uh, Buffalo Synod. Who was Buffalo Synod? Remind me. Mm. I can't remember the character, you know, and they just talk past each other. It's like, it's right. the, same, the same thing a little bit with Leia, right? Or they, yeah, absolutely. They just, yeah. Uh, maybe they were actually closer than what they thought, but but in the end, they just, they had very different uh, perceptions of what happened. <laughs> different intent, right? Different well, approach too. to yeah, what they were true. doing. <clears throat> Excuse me, my allergies are out of control today. No problem. I'm all verklempt. <clears throat> clearing my throat. So sorry to you listeners having listened to me clear my throat. I can't edit it all out. But the point being, <laughs> The intent then and the motivation for attending Marburg was as disparate as the opinions that were brought to bear. Yeah, as to what the what the consequence was right. or what was the result. So Luther walks away and says, we defended our position and the other side yielded much. Mm -hmm. Whereas Zwingli says, posterity will testify to the fact that we won the fight <laughs> and they were defeated. Why? Because Luther is impudent and stubborn. A recalcitrant ass. Right. So Sazi continues, it is only after such utterances had become known and in the completely changed situation of the summer of 1530, that Luther too spoke of his opponents as having been defeated. This difference of opinion concerning the result at Marburg shows already how little actually had been achieved. <laughs> you get home, how'd it go? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling really good. I'm optimistic. I think things went really well a year later. Um, yeah, well, actually, it's, uh, things escalated no. quickly. No, and the food wasn't even that good, you know? Right, food wasn't that good. Their stories were dumb. They smelled bad. Yeah, it was kind of like, like a pastor conference. 100%. 100%. But to go back to my reference to Agricola, the same thing happens with Agricola is that Luther extends him every courtesy. Yeah. Um, it is charitable to a fault. Actually, others accused Luther of being charitable to a fault with Agricola. And yet in the end, when Luther saw that there was no way Agricola was coming back, mm -hmm. same thing with Zwingli, Luther then pivots and attacks him violently. Yeah. Because for Luther, yes, it's personal. Like I spoke charitably of you, I defended your name and reputation, and then you betrayed me. You betrayed my charity, you betrayed my kindness, and therefore now I'm mad. Personally, I'm mad, and just from a confession of the faith and defending the faith against the devil, publicly speaking, I'm mad about that too. Yeah. So now I'm gonna now I'm gonna lay it. In, I'm gonna lay into you as hard as I can. Well, and again, I I think Luther lays that that or you know gives us that ethos that that carries forward into the generations of Luther, Lutherans, I should say. Right. In particular, how like how they regard Melanchthon, right? Yes. And right. Hundred percent. You know, he's a turncoat and he's a traitor, and then he gets thrown under the bus basically from there on right. out. The Melanchthonian swamp. <laughs> And and maybe I mean obviously there's some truth to it. I mean with the um, with the concessions of the uh, of the altered right. Augsburg Confession, but uh, the Variata. Well, and with his students too, the Philippists, as they come to be known, mm -hmm. which eventually leads to the receptionist controversy. How much of it is his students versus Luther's students? Yeah, I saw this in my graduate work. Is that my doctor father's students, including myself, would attack another professor through their students yeah. and vice versa. No. That's how you wage war in academics. <laughs> yeah, disputation. Yeah, it's it's detente. You just load up your students and then send them out into the wild to attack and destroy each other. Yeah, in our context, we have two seminaries that have been doing that for, mm, what, pretty much their entire history. <laughs> A minute. There's the One practical is geography. and the, yeah, and the no. yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's context, it's everything. But point being that here 
Lou, you you note this is that there's a kind of an epigenetic memory here of mm. well Lutherans debate stuff. Well, the thing I think we've forgotten though over the years, as demonstrated in the last let's say forty to fifty years in the United States in our context, is there is charitableness and there is a striving towards peace mm-hmm. that pre it's preeminent to the conversation versus we're going in i'm right you're wrong you agree with me that i'm right and you're wrong you come over you embrace everything that i just said as being right you repeat and parrot what i say right and therefore you're right and now we're in fellowship right there's no charitableness there's no kindness there's no attempt at peace other than peace through superior firepower so to speak right when we see when we see this in like the pauline epistles with the exception mm-hmm. of say second corinthians right which, mm-hmm. which makes sense. I mean, I've written to you, I, you know, I visited you, I've, and what's wrong with you people, right? He's right. not so charitable the second time around. You, yes. If you have to write you another letter, yeah, um, you know, I was willing to go right. with you for a while, but yeah, you're, you're just not getting it, right? Right. Yeah. So, so there is, the default position though is, is charity. It's, it's seeking peace. Right. Well, this, since we're talking about it, nothing, this is one of my pet peeves, so mark this down, folks listening. It annoys me to no end when uh, someone says to me, especially a pastor, well, I'm trying to keep, I'm trying to put the best construction on what I heard about you. Okay, one, don't try. Either do it or don't do it. There is no try. <laughs> this is, are you, by saying trying, you're saying I'm not very good at this. And uh, Right, well, by saying I'm trying, you're saying I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I have to, like I'm obligated. And two, you're gossiping. So knock it off. Yeah. You've already broken the eighth commandment. Mm-hmm. And stop justifying gossip and stop justifying slander and stop justifying tearing down a person's name and reputation under the guise of public doctrine. Or or under the guise of just, you know, a faulty attempt, right? Yeah, right. Either defend my name and reputation or don't. But don't pretend right. by saying I'm trying. Yeah, it, actually intent doesn't matter. It's so passive aggressive. Your, intent, just, your intentions are not the thing. What you do right. is the thing, right? Right, 100%. I didn't intend to kill the person. Yeah, but you're getting manslaughter because you did. Right, I was going to say, but you did. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier. You know, I, I, I was drinking and driving and I hit somebody and I'm really sorry I didn't see him. No, 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 no. Hitting them is not your first mistake. Taking a drink and then deciding it was a good idea to get in a car, all of those decisions are the mistake. Hitting him again, like the nail factory, hitting him is just the mm-hmm. final, yeah. like, how did, like, this is what the result is. This is what this is going to result in. So I'm not sending you to jail just for hitting him. I'm sending you to jail for making a really stupid choice. Or as I saw yesterday, uh, in regards to abortion, mm. is that you don't want to take responsibility for a choice you made, which is to have unprotected sex. And so everybody else, including yourself, whether you're aware of it or not, has to suffer for your not taking responsibility for a choice you made. Right, right. And in the Christian community, there's a way that we can handle that in, through repentance, confession, absolution, and the community surrounding that person and saying, no, the way in which this baby was conceived, not good, yet still a gift of God, still a creature of God, still one for whom Jesus died. Therefore, what must we do to get this child to the font? Mm-hmm. What must we do to restore you to full communion with us? Uh, again, all evangelically bent yep. versus the world away, the worldly way of this, which is, well, you you got to, it's not a thing. It's a collection of cells or, well, you've got to, you know, you can't be burdened with this. You're so young. You have your whole life ahead of you. Yep. You have no choice. Yep. These kinds of things. Yeah. It's not the way of mercy. It's the way of vengeance, really. Right. And so we focus so much, and my point is we focus so much on the aborting of the fetus that we forget about attending all of the things that precede that consequence which is the choice and the education and the community that that person is surrounded by and all of the things, the peer group and everything else that goes into that. The abortion is just the final straw. That's the consequent. Well, and we, laws, laws do deter, right? I mean, they do set Mm -hmm. up some barriers and uh, although they also increase trespasses, the Bible's clear. The the other aspect of this too, is there's no like magic formula, right? To prevent, um, prevent such violent, you know, Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, inadvertent (laughs) consequences. I say inadvertent, tongue in cheek. Inherent brutality. Yeah. It's original sin. We're born with it. Uh Uh-huh. And so uh, the the question isn't, well, how do we prevent these things? Although that's part of it. It's really, Mm -hmm. how do we respond? You know, are we going to respond with with grace and mercy and peace? Yeah. Are we going to respond uh, with violence and kind? Or are we going to say something like, I'm trying to help you. So help me help you. Right. Again, manipulative, passive aggressive, 
not honest. Well, I was going to say, that's not only offensive, it's another well, kind 100%. of violence. Because mm-hmm. it's essentially just saying, again, without saying it, you know you messed up, right? And you know we got to punish you, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why don't you help me pick your punishment? <laughs> Ugh. So back to the book. The lack of a real result was at first hidden by the Marburg articles, articles which were understood by each side in a different way. And there you go. For Luther and the Lutherans, they were the beginning of a real union, a theological document, which proved that Zwingli was able to yield in important matters, and thus justified the hope that he would eventually accept that last point on which agreement had not been reached. Hmm. For Zwingli and his friends, this document was the utmost that they could concede. It was for them a success insofar as it now was no longer possible for the papists to claim Luther as their ally. At the same time, it was a sufficient basis for common political action and eventual fellowship of all Protestants. Hence, it had not only theological, but also great political significance. Hmm. So it got um, the opponents, well, Zwingli and his friends on the same Mm -hmm. page. Right, it gave them political cover. So that so that they could um, have common political action. So you end up with basically three parties. You've got the Protestants, the Lutherans, and the Catholics. Right. Yeah. And the Lutherans are always being, the attempt is always to pull the Lutherans over toward the Protestant Reformed camp. Or towards the Catholic camp, right? Yeah, that's true. You're like Catholic light. You'll hear that sometimes. Yes, right. Yep. And to the point in why I think it's important that everyone who's Lutheran, especially read this, read the Marburg Colloquy, most Lutheran, Luther may have thought he won the debate hmm. or the Lutherans. Zwingli won this war because most Lutherans theologically are Zwinglian when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Yeah. As we've noted, that's why open communion is so popular across the board. Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't matter what I believe, it's, um, or it doesn't matter what you say, <laughs> what your public confession is. All that it, matters is what I believe in my heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So that's the thing is, is, likewise with Luther's debate with Erasmus, Luther may have won the debate, popularly speaking, but Erasmus won that war because he is the proto-evangelical, American evangelical. Yeah, we've seen that when we read him. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. So same thing here with Zwingli. Luther won a lot of debates. He was good at it. However, popularly speaking, you know, in he's not a populist, let's put it that way. Although he was popular for a moment in Germany following Mm -hmm. the Peasants' Revolt, he wasn't as popular anymore. Well, and I think you see this, that, I mean, he's a, he's a significant figure, and especially when they're in his personal presence, you yes. know, they, they just, they're just going to concede to him, but then yep. walk away and stab him in the back, basically. Right. A lot of people do that. Right. It, it's just an easy, it's, it's really the only way they could deal with him. Yeah. Melanchthon laments that in his eulogy for Luther, mm. that early on, especially, because he was a young guy when he got to Wittenberg, he was still a teenager, essentially of just being overwhelmed by the power and force of Luther's personality and his zeal in his preaching and teaching. Yeah. And a lot of people talk about it that way. We call him, we'd say he's charismatic, right? Very charismatic, yes. So there is that aspect of it that Luther, we, as we said at the beginning, the context is so important for these historical debates because you read the document and it really seems from the Lutheran perspective, and here's confirmation bias at play too, Luther won the debate. He won the argument because we agree with him. Mm. However, read the same debate to a table of Lutherans on a Sunday morning in adult Bible study and see what they say Yeah, yeah. about if they're going to be honest, which side do you actually agree with? Well, and then, like you said, look at, look at modern day Lutherans in, in comparison to you know, what Zwingli confessed at Marburg, mm-hmm. um, or just look at the generation after Luther died. Yeah. And what happened? Torn uh, apart by these debates. Yeah, how fragmented it became, you know, and only mm-hmm. by God's providence did did they get on any kind of common ground. <laughs> right. You know. Well, you see this in the crypto-Calvinist controversy at the University of Wittenberg. Mm-hmm. All of these card-carrying Lutherans who taught Calvinist theology, mm. specifically in regards to the sacraments. Yeah. And they were there. Yeah. The whole time. And they, you know, well, what do you say? You keep keep your nose down, you know. Yeah. And the, until uh, until the really the founder, you get mm-hmm. a little bit of a founder syndrome there. You know, there's a, right. there's a vacuum after Luther dies, who's going to take his place, what's going to happen, right. you know, and, and, but also you lose that unifying voice as far as doctrine. Right. You no, know, it's there in the scriptures, but yeah, right. 
but they were only listening to Luther. And so po politically then, here it goes, the landgrave Philip of Hesse, mm -hmm. for him it was a highly important political and ecclesiastical document, not theological, ecclesiastical, and here's why. Mm. The Marburg Articles are indeed a monument to the diplomatic skill of this great church politician. It was a masterpiece of diplomacy to persuade Luther, after the colloquy had failed, to draft this set of theses and to persuade Zwingli to accept them. Only a political genius could change an obvious failure into a seeming success. With Luther and Zwingli agreeing on 14 out of 15 articles, and even expressing their agreement concerning the Lord's Supper on five out of six points in Article 15, not only the participants, even Luther, but also the contemporaries on either side, could cherish the hope that a full union was not very far off. For more than four centuries, the clever diplomacy of Philip of Hesse and the wishful thinking of all friends of a Protestant union were able to deceive Christendom as to the real outcome of the days of Marburg. Huh. So up until up until middle of 20th century. Right. To me, uh, Herman is one of the best church historians you'll ever find. Because he has such a power of insight. Hmm. To draw stuff out that you read the you read the articles and you would never in a million years think this is how Philip leveraged these for political and ecclesiastical um, benefit. Yeah, and then he points it out and you're like, yeah, you're right, he did. Yeah, he was a genius. I mean, he was he was a lot of things, Philip, and none of them were very moral. <laughs> well, and you've been reading a lot of military history. Uh, yeah, and I was thinking about. Um, like the conflicts, not really wars, I don't think we declared war, um, Iraq in particular, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and multiple, you know, large scale um, activities there, war activities. Military operations. Military yeah. operations. And, you know, how we perceive those things today, how much of that is actually what happened? Or, right. or has it been conditioned by, you know, our public politicians who have tried right. to tell us what what actually, what what it meant, what happened, or right. especially Afghanistan, you know. I was going to say, a perfect example is actually Vietnam, because all the way into and up and through uh, uh, George Bush Sr.'s uh, presidency, the, the common byline that had been adopted basically by the mid-70s already, which was the United States never lost a battle in Vietnam. They lost the war because the American people lost their will and the politicians betrayed the put, soldiers. So put so it speak. on the citizenry, yeah. Yeah, essentially, yeah. And the politicians who were anti-war mm. politicians, right? The McGoverns and so forth. It was all you, you know, hippie liberals. Chicken yeah. Hawk. yeah, exactly, it was the hippies. And that pers you could find that in any college history course up, like I said, through the late uh, 80s into Clinton's administration. And yet you go back now and watch Ken Burns's documentary on Vietnam, mm -hmm. which... It, uh, I've said before, it takes me about two weeks in between every episode to calm down and not be angry um, because my dad had done two tours of duty and it really destroyed my family before it even started. But you look at it from the perspective of history now, interviewing people that were there, looking at official government documents that were declassified, yeah. listening to recordings that were uh, from the Oval Office and so forth and so on. And you discover the entire thing from beginning to end before it was ever declared, declared even a police action was a complete and utter shipwreck. Yeah. And that Lyndon Johnson and McNamara and, and others essentially committed Holocaust against the American people by sending these, these boys over there to be sacrificed because they couldn't simply admit we were wrong, we shouldn't be here and we need to get out now. It's but masters of spin, propaganda, whatever it, you want to call it. 100% of the time. And yeah. think about it, 1967, 68, how much access does the press, for example, have or the American population then have to the inner workings, the behind the scenes workings of the strategies for Vietnam, for the Johnson administration. Right? Well, and really even in our contemporary context until, um, you know, WikiLeaks, uh, yeah, it, was, that's true. it was still the same. Right. And it is, it, it is still in the, in this age of, of technology. Like for example, the missing 20 pages of, um, you know, the 9-11 report, 20 some pages right. uh, that said, yeah, actually Saudi intelligence officers gave uh, right, we know the information. Right? Yeah, we know it was the Saudis. Yeah, it was, but they have oil. They have oil, and they're an ally. <laughs> and they're an ally. They commit public beheadings, but they're. We'll just ally. lose those pages for a while. Just you know, <sighs> right? 
Yeah, it's aggravating. Right. So it has to again, it's it's above our pay grade, as as one retired Navy SEAL I listened to says, it's above my pay grade. Well, you can't overthink. <laughs> I mean, it would just undermine the whole thing. I mean, how are you going to? Well, serve? you'll end up with a tinfoil hat on and a Faraday cage. <laughs> yeah, go go live in a cave, <laughs> and and start watching Enemy of the State as if it's a documentary. So Philip of Hesse is using what Luther thought of as a theological dialogue and using it for, really spinning it for a whole different thing. 100%. Philip recognizes, right, Luther's just there to make a public confession and be like, this is our confession. Philip recognizes, though, no, there's something to be gained that's much bigger. He sees a bigger picture, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, as I reference, go back and, and watch the, the show that I'm watching, The Last Kingdom, which is Alfred the Great trying to unify England. The Danes have invaded. They've kind of taken over most of... Uh, of you know great britain and alfred's point like alfred sees the big picture as king he sees the big picture so he's always manipulating people everyone around him is being manipulated while they think they're actually getting some advantage from him <laughs> and he's using their greed or their desire for fame or whatever they want he uses that and leverages it against them so that by the time they finally recognize they've been played it's way too late yeah and that's the point, is that the the politician, the genius politician, the genius general, he's always 12 moves ahead. Now you're watching it now, you know, with hindsight. Yes. And you're like, right. this is creepy. This guy's a creep. Right. right, right, 100%. And you can see it, but you have the benefit of history, you know. Well, yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so in the moment Luther's saying, we made some positive steps, in the moment Zwingli's saying, we defeated the Lutherans, and Philip's saying, oh no, my friends, you're so juvenile in the way you're approaching this. Was, was Philip at uh, Augsburg then too? I think so. Was the Landgrave? Yeah, he's one of the confessors. I thought so, and they're yeah. all politicians that's, right. that present the Augsburg Confession. Yeah, Melanchthon right. wrote it, but right. but it's the it's the princes that present it. And we're, we're yes. always like, oh, the noble, you know, layman, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the sure faithful and noble layman. You're like, well, yeah, it's also very yeah, it's politically motivated because they're meeting to the emperor. But that, again, like I was saying, you can't, look backwards, especially at medieval history, and fail to appreciate the interweaving, the the complete binding together of politics and ecclesiology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're inseparable. And I, I've, I think I mentioned it in the earlier episode, The King's Two Body, that book about the King's Two Bodies, yeah. that the king represents not only the earthly institution, but also the heavenly institution of kingship. So yeah. he is not only an earthly ruler, but he's also considered somewhat divine. He's a messenger, a head, whatever you want to call it, for divinity. And that's, I mean, and it's still true. It's still true. It's just which churches, you know, are the yeah. political leaders interacting with. Right. You know, 100%. But like Mr. Trump, for example, I mean, he's yes. pretty obvious that he gets the he, had the, he had the Protestant coalitions, you know. And yes. They, right. they were one of some of the first people to get in the Oval Office after he took office, right? To right. With him. So, 100%. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they've got his ear. He recognizes he's got, that's how you gain political clout is you bring in, yeah. you know, um, especially right. religious bodies. No, 100%. Hmm. So back to the book, when Luther, after his own suggestion for a union had been rejected, agreed to formulate articles on which there was agreement. He made use of the articles that had been drafted some months before as a basis for an alliance of the Lutheran territories, and which later were called the Schwabach Articles, as we have seen. Hans von Schubert, in his book that I mentioned earlier, not only destroyed the opinion, generally held up until 1910, that Luther immediately after Marburg changed the Marburg Articles, with their peaceful tendency into the anti-Zwinglian Schwabach articles, which always had been regarded as proving Luther's irreconcilableness. <laughs> but he also made it clear how closely the Marburg articles follow the articles that Luther had brought from Wittenberg, and which also played a role in the preliminary discussions. How it was possible for Zwingli to accept Marburg articles four on original sin, eight on the word as means of grace, nine on baptism, 10 on confession, and 14 on infant baptism remains a mystery. <laughs> For even if the formulation was obliging, so that in some cases either side could find its opinion expressed, as in the article on original sin, the man who the following year was to submit his fidei ratio to the emperor, and soon after his exposition of the Christian faith to the king of France, could not possibly with a good conscience, except the articles on the word and on baptism, 
How could he declare with Article 9 that baptism, quote, is not a mere empty sign or symbol among Christians, but a sign and work of God? And in Article 14, that in baptism, children, quote, are received into God's grace and into Christendom. While in the Fidei Ratio, Article 7, Zwingli pointed out that the sacraments do not convey grace or even contribute to the reception of grace, and that, quote, by baptism, the church publicly receives him who previously had been received by grace. Whew. How could Zwingli reconcile the doctrine that the Holy Spirit gives faith and his gifts through the oral word, Marburg Article 8, with the view expressed in Fidei Ratio, Article 7, that the Holy Spirit does not need any vehicle as the wind blows where it wills. Though this passage deals with the sacraments as alleged means of grace, it includes the rejection of the external word as a necessary means of grace. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, what Zasa is saying is that, uh, uh, as von Schubert had demonstrated, that uh, Luther's Marburg is not a faithful reception. His Marburg Articles is not a faithful exposition on what actually happened at Marburg. Correct. That Luther, uh, it, the Marburg Articles are more Lutheran than Zwingli would accept. Fake news. Fake news, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When Ooh. Luther gets in the pulpit and that quote I read, and he says what he says, Yeah. M maybe he believed that, but... Based on the Schwabach articles, it seems to lend itself to the fact that he also is playing political games, or at least ecclesial games. And and that uh, that the Lutherans had gotten it wrong. I mean, they're trying to tell a narrative. I think it's pretty clear that the, right. the narrative is, is that Luther is very, you know, ecclesia, ecclesiological. He's very, you know, amenable. And then he gets more and more passionate as people... And, and right. uh, reject the truth. Right. right. And then, right. you know, if you like arrogant, but really just more forceful. And that's how we need mm -hmm. to be because they've rejected the truth. Whereas what you actually see is Schwabach is first and right. is less reconcilable. And then yeah. Marburg is actually better, but it's still not what he actually probably said to Zwingli himself. Right. Right. You know what? Okay. We're going to do this. We got to do this. You can, <laughs> you can veto. We, we need to read these. Uh, it's in sources and context for those of you listening. Schwabach, yeah. Yeah, we'll read Schwabach. Let's do that. Because I don't think very many people are even familiar with the Schwabach articles. Yeah. And they're good. They're, they're meaty for sure. But it's, it's almost in, you see this again in, in a lot of political discussions. One side has to basically say, you know what? I'll say that I backed off so that you can save face. Hmm. Because one side is a, one side is reluctant to compromise because they've got to go back and report to their king, their president, the prime minister, their leaders. This is what happened, and the they know if they go back and say, "Well, we we conceded the point." There's going to be not only political consequences, but there might be real punitive mm -hmm. consequences for conceding and giving up ground. So one side has to say, "Well, they gave, you know, we won." And this is why we won versus both sides here are claiming victory after the fact, because both sides have to save face with the people who are saying, like you pointed out with Luther, he's a charismatic reformer. He's not apocalyptic. He's not doom, gloom, and the end of the world's tomorrow kind of guy. He's not a moral reformer. Mm -mm. He's not going back and saying, this is the way you're going to live your life and prove you're Christian. He's a charismatic reformer, which means he's a populist to a certain extent. Zwingli is too. And he's very popular with the soldiery right. in, in around Zurich, we've, you know, and go read his biography. And as a consequence, they can't just go home and say, we conceded on these points for the sake of peace because they get home and then they're basically going to be armchair quarterbacked by the people that weren't there yeah. and blamed for giving away too much. Well, it's kind of like folks that today even complain about, well, there's politics in church and there should be no politics in church. And, <laughs> and certainly what we're reading here, I mean, it is kind of disgusting, the idea that, that you're going to use the doctrine of baptism, what we teach about, or what the scriptures teach about baptism right, right. as political leverage. Right. For up to and past 400 years. <sighs> to, you know, to, to, yeah, to gain power or, or favor um, with men. I yeah. get that. Um, but it's also, uh, unfortunately, part of the deal right it is you're, it you're is. dealing with people you're dealing with with the polis with people right and they're the yes they are going to manipulate and and use god's word for their own benefit right 
you know, and to gain clout yeah, and authority. Yeah, we're sinners. Yeah. You go and look at the Mog, the siege of Magdeburg. They wouldn't come out. Why? Because they refused to break the bread. Mm-hmm. They refused to elevate and break the bread. And so a cannonball flies through the roof of the house while uh, Matthias Flacius Illyricus is writing uh, some documentation down to present. Yeah. It's like, what are the seeds of that siege? What are the seeds of the crypto Calvinist controversy? This. Mm. This is one of them. Like I said, this isn't the thing, but it's certainly one of the things that then accumulates and results in these other things happening. Yeah. And even and, in a context where we don't have this, you know, really intimate connection between church and state, um, because we have the so-called um, distinction or separation or whatever we call it. Uh, like I said, I think that's a little bit of a fallacy. It's just, it's, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's not as overt or as obvious, uh, but it's right. still, it's still at play in the background. And then. Well, last time I checked, there were a lot of church bodies that had lobbying offices in Washington, mm, Including our own. Yeah. So let's, let's not. Yeah. Well, Let's and, then, not pretend and then there's parties within the church. And yes, they're yes, not necessarily absolutely. theological. Or usually every church basement, every church kitchen has a political party <laughs> that is active today. <laughs> it's so true. They might have blue hair. Right. But they are still politically active and they are definitely calling the political and ecclesiastical shots. Mm. Yeah. Or at least it's, want to or try to. Well, historically in my congregation, for example, the men are in charge of the council but it's their wives that tell them when they get home what they're going to be voting on and how they're going to vote. Well, and I had a, a pastor friend say to me, oh, you know, so-and-so in the congregation staged a coup. And you're like, well, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a, actually a political statement, isn't it? Right. Staging right. a coup in a congregation? You're saying, right. yeah, yeah, there's political action yeah. happening here. Hmm. So, yeah, it happens. It's, and like you said, it's ugly and it's grotesque. But that's what happens when sinners get their hands on a little bit of power or get a little leverage mm-hmm. or see an advantage. They shoot for it. Yeah. And to use God's and word for that, you know. Even better, right? I even guess. better if I can I, cover again, it with God. <laughs> of godliness, yeah. yeah. So that that's an hour. That brings us to the end of basically what, what uh, Sazi wants to cover. That's his first thought in this section. And then it goes on as Sazi does for a long time. This is an exhaustive treatment of this topic. I can't recommend this is my body highly enough. Mm. I think it's one of I think it's along with the Alert on Eucharistic Fellowship, it's the volume in modern Lutheran theology on the Lord's Supper. Because as I said, in my opinion, there's no better church historian than Sazi for us as Lutherans. And Ehlert does a wonderful job with the early church. Sazi does a wonderful job with the medieval and Reformation church. Well, and what I love about it, as we've already seen, is that um, he's not ashamed um, to see Luther's flaw. You right, know, exactly. And, yeah, and, he's not afraid to flinch. And, and one of uh, that's one of the challenges for us. I mean, because we're Lutherans, unfortunately, it's our name. I mean, evangelical would have been nicer, I suppose, but um, <laughs> oh well. Right. And, and so, I mean, we, we can't defend Luther. Always, um, not not no. just theologically, but practically. No. It's like trying to defend right. Paul's personality, right? You can't defend Paul's personality at certain points, uh, or no. Peter, or Peter. That that doesn't diminish their confession at all. It doesn't diminish the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired them to confess Christ. However, again, going back to my example of Samson, the Holy Spirit has a tendency to pick personalities hmm. that are they don't lend themselves to a charitable construction. <laughs> well, and I don't, and, and Peter himself you know, allows the evangelists, I don't know if he got editorial privilege on that, but <laughs> right <laughs> uh, to pre- have him presented in not so favorable right. way. I w- I'd right. like to read the outtakes, the non-canonical, you know, Peter and yeah. Paul. I bet you, yeah. uh, you're like, if you're offended by what you read in Second Corinthians, wait till you read this. <laughs> right, wait till Third Corinthians comes along and Third Peter. Yeah, you now you can see why we didn't include that in the canon, right. okay? Wait until you read all the stuff John chopped out of his gospel about Peter. <sighs> right yeah but that's the point is that where luther points to christ we laud him we honor him we respect him we praise him even where he doesn't whether it's a personality flaw or he just acts like a belligerent ass <laughs> we got to call a spade a spade and against hans Vorst, against the jews and their lies that's unforgivable stuff because it was used politically and it was used ecclesiastically to persecute people and even a document like marburg which i you know is, yeah. is actually good um, I mean, we can recognize the context or, or <laughs> the motivation right. for writing it. Maybe not as good. Right. Yeah, exactly. After the fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the moment, who knew? There's no social media. There's no live. There's no FaceTime. There's no texting. These these things took years to suss out. Right. 
Yeah, and I don't and, and I don't think there was like a machine. I mean, that's it's not necessarily as orchestrated right. as organized as as maybe we're capable of doing now when you just go on eight chan and just put together a bunch right. of bombers and, and coordinate right. an effort and you know. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, in the one sense it certainly helps that it took more time because it forced you to be methodical and really think. On the other hand, it also allowed you to really, really entrench this stuff deeply in the culture of the church. Yeah. Because you had time. Hmm. So I guess what we're saying is be careful playing, playing church politics mm -hmm. and especially be careful when you do it with God's word. Yeah. Because the consequences may be things that you don't see in the moment. You're naive to them or ignorant. Yeah. Hmm. Point to Christ, point to the gifts, stick stick at the cross, just stay at the cross. If you're going to fight for anything, fight right. for that. Right. Otherwise, fight lay, for down, the, lay down your arms. Right. Yeah. Fight for the body, mm -hmm. water, blood, and spirit crying, mm -hmm. right, as the hymn declares. Fight for that. Fight for weekly communion. Fight for the baptismal font being front and center. Fight for the gospel being proclaimed consistently every single Lord's Day and every holiday, feast day. Well, you have Christ's own word on your side then. There you go, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, then come up me, you can say, Lord, I was faithful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Good. That's it. That's fantastic stuff. Come back next week for a brand new episode, and we'll dive into Schwabach. As always, we appreciate everything you do to support this podcast and the ministry of Higher Things, and we love you, and we'll see you next week. Peace.